In this episode of Agentic Shift, we talk to Tim Ash, founder and former CEO of SiteTuners, a performance marketing agency based in San Diego, California. Tim tells us about the pros and cons of being 10 years ahead of key marketing trends, why working with clients sometimes feels like marrying an insane person, why one of his clients turned down a clear $17 million optimization opportunity, what his time as a child in the Soviet Union taught him about account management, and why he believes ageism is a problem in online marketing. Enjoy the show. Tim, thanks for joining us on Agentic Shift. Uh, David, it's my pleasure. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. We've been friends for so long that it would age us to tell the story of how long we've been friends. So I'm not going to even go there. Well, let's just say we're both members of the Streamlined Haircut Agency Owner Club. Yeah. Yes. Being an agency owner, you lose your hair. So for anyone who's out there who's a (laughs) young owner with lots of hair, you may want to think twice because it happens. Tim and I are proof. Rogaine isn't going to help afterwards either. No, I never even tried. So you've actually owned, I guess, a couple agencies. Why don't you start by just telling us the founder story, how you got involved in the first agency, how you got involved in the second agency, where you started. Actually, I just want to say up front that you are no longer involved in any agency. So this is going to be the no holds barred, what it's really like to run an agency. You have no skin in the game. You have no clients you need to keep happy or employees. So we're going to hear the really unvarnished truth today, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'll just set up the larger arc of my life. As you know, I was born in the former USSR in Moscow, Russia, and emigrated to the US. My family came here when I was eight years old and went through public schools in New York, Michigan, New Jersey, and then got a full ride academic scholarship at a UC San Diego with a nude beach next door. It wasn't exactly a tough choice of schools. So I came out here, I stayed there, for, uh, majored in computer engineering and cognitive science as an undergraduate, and then went on to do my master's and a total of seven years of PhD work. And during that time, I worked at big companies, NCR, SAIC, which is a big defense contractor. And seven years into my PhD, I quit because the only thing you need a computer science PhD for is if you intend to teach at a leading university. And that was never my path. So I was just kind of more of a stubborn and my dad had his PhD, my mom had her master. So of course I'm going to graduate school. After my dad died, I decided, yeah, maybe not so much. At 29, I decided I'm not going to start my fourth decade on this earth still in school. So I quit graduate school. I quit my job and I started my first agency. (laughs) Wow. The first agency was called what? It was called Future Focus, and it was essentially a dot-com incubator. This is early days, 1995, shortly after Al Gore invented the interwebs. (laughs) And so we were building websites, some of the first database-driven ones. We were also acting CTO on startup boards and management teams while they raised their money. It was really early days when it was a cottage industry, I would say. And that was a lot of fun, but also just a wild ride as well. And after that, I shut down that agency and started a new one to focus on what was new at the time, pay-per-click marketing. I don't have to describe that to you. It's now called SEM. And this was, again, early days. So it was uh, GoTo, which became Overture, which got swallowed up and became Yahoo Search. And nobody even remembers Yahoo Search at this point anymore. But we were one of the first ones to run pay-per-click campaigns for clients, large-scale stuff. We actually developed automated tools that plugged right into it, and we're the first bidding tool vendor. So we do fun stuff like 
jack up competitors' bids by bidding just a penny under them so they couldn't lower their prices and had these automated little algorithms running back in the day. And so we managed large-scale pay-per-click campaigns for clients. And then up pops affiliate marketing. And we said, hey, we can drive lots of good traffic. Why don't we just do some arbitrage and do PPC, essentially be a super affiliate using pay-per-click marketing. So we did that. I remember one month we were making 17,000 on ringtones for cell phones. (laughs) This is pre-iPhone days. It was really a fun ride. But what we realized very quickly is that the traffic we were sending was high quality, but the websites and landing pages sucked. And so he said, let us make you more money by fixing your landing pages. And eventually that became my last agency, Site Tuners. And it turned into a bit of a tail wagging the dog. In other words, we jettisoned all of our pay-per-click management, all of our super affiliate stuff, and became one of the first conversion rate optimization agencies to make websites more effective. And had a good run for about 2000. And my involvement ended in about 2019. It strikes me that you have been consistently about 10 years ahead of the curve. Like you were building websites <laughs> in 1995 and it wasn't until 2005 that everyone sort of woke up and then PPC in 2001, it sounds like, or 2000, yep. you know, and then landing pages in 2005. So that's kind of a double-edged sword though, isn't it? I mean, because it's great to see the future, but if all your potential clients don't see the future with you, you have a lot of headwinds in some respects. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And thanks for calling that out. I'm a visionary, I would say, and focused on the future. So I've spot the trends and I would jump right in. But you're right, the market often wasn't mature or people didn't know how to pay for those services or how to value them even. So it was definitely some missionary selling there. At one point, we even did some performance-based marketing. We'd say, hey, if we make you a dollar of extra profit, will you give us 50 cents? And so we tried this performance-based business model, but in order not to get screwed by our clients, it required these heavy-duty 20-page contracts that they were never willing to sign. So even at the level of the business model, there was a lot of trial and error, mostly error. Yeah, actually, that's why I typically don't like performance deals, because it often feels like heads I win, tails you lose. Yeah, it's kind of like, we're going to pay you a million dollars. If you make us $2 million, people get greedy. Then they don't want to open up the kimono about their financials and all kinds of fun stuff happens. So in theory, it's great. But I had a professor once tell me in graduate school, he said, in theory, theory and practice are the same. In practice, they're <laughs> not. Totally true for business. I was reminded when you were talking about doing PPC in like the early days in 2003, I had an interview with Intuit for a search engine marketing job. And they wanted someone with four to six years of search engine marketing experience. And they didn't offer <laughs> me the job. Good luck. Yeah. And I said, there's only two people who have that much experience. Their names are Larry and Sergey. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and the same thing in terms of being early into the game, when I co-founded Site Tuners in 2000, we were actually one of Google's first, at the time it was called Website Optimizer, their landing page optimization tool, split testing tool. We were one of the first five companies that were certified by them. And then they say early to that one too, eventually they rolled it into Google Analytics and had hundreds of consultancies of various stripes working on those projects. But yeah, it's like early to the party, you're just standing in the corner (laughs) drinking your own drink. That's all that happens. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I remember speaking at a conference on PPC. It was a legal conference because I was working at a legal law firm or legal website. I had a speaking presentation with me and someone from Yahoo Search Marketing. And I think there were literally four people in the room, the two of us and two people <laughs> in the audience. So we just came off the podium and just sat down at a table and talked to the two people who bothered to show up because no one cared about pay-per-click advertising. 
at that point, we also bought a one-year contract with Microsoft. We got guaranteed top three ranking for the word lawyer for 25 cents a click. Wow. <laughs> Today, that would be probably $25 a click would be my guess. So let me ask you about the early days of these businesses. What were some of the challenges that you had to overcome that you think uh, you know someone starting a business today would have to think about and maybe you could learn from? We've already touched on, which is being early to the party. And I think that's a really important one. You don't want to be, if you look at any activity, first, it's the high priests doing it, and then it becomes more or less understood and people have it in their job title. And eventually it becomes a commodity because it's so well understood that it can probably be automated or procedurized in many ways. And it's not rocket surgery anymore, as I like to say. So one of the things I had to decide really early on is what kind of agency we wanted to be. And for me, that meant we wanted to be one of those bleeding edge agencies just because that was my temperament and I was spotting those trends, which meant along with it that we had to have really expensive, smart people to do the work. It's okay to be like the type of lawyer that does wills and trusts and 90% of it is spit out by your word processing program and you fill in a few blanks. But then there's lawyers that do international tax law for giant corporations. That's really, really hard to do. So again, deciding where you want to be in terms of how commoditized or how common the understanding of your services is. And if you're going to stay on the bleeding edge, again, it implies high salaries, really smart people, always swimming upstream. If you're okay just cranking out operational stuff, that's fine too. It was just never my personality type. It's interesting because one of my sayings about how agencies are successful is that they have to operate on two axes. They have to provide scarcity in terms of what they provide to clients, and they have to provide immense value. And actually, I would argue that what happened to you in the early days is you were extremely scarce. No one else was doing it, but clients didn't recognize the value in the early days, right? So mm-hmm. that's why I'm assuming in 1995, you could go into you know the top 100 brick and mortar stores and say, you need a website. And probably 80 of them would say, no, we don't. <laughs> right, right. What for? It's an online brochure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's, I think, where the timing becomes relevant because value is determined by the client. And if you're too early... But value doesn't necessarily, I mean, if uh, require high profit margin. So for example, if you say, we're going to just crank out pay-per-click management and we're going to do it with automated tools and once in a while have somebody smart take a look at them and readjust some things. Okay, that's one model versus we're going to do really complicated localization and multiple languages and do search engine marketing in that environment. And that requires a lot of labor and people thinking with their heads. So I think, again, it's a conscious decision of how cutting edge you want to be because value might mean we do this operational stuff really well and we make a 5% profit margin, but we do it in volume. That's one type of agency. And there's, like I said, the other type where it's like on all the ones I built, which were all chiefs and no Indians, to use the Native American analogy. They're expensive and smart and a handful to manage as well as to have the clients appreciate the value when they said, oh, my 15-year-old nephew took a class in pay-per-click marketing on, what is it, LinkedIn learning. And so they're going to run my campaign now. I agree with you. I mean, I think that that would be an example of low scarcity, low value business. It's like if you're just automating this and you have an 18 year old, you know, in somewhere near Arches National Park, check once a month when they're mountaineering to see how your account's doing, then you're going to charge someone (laughs) $495 a month and they'll be happy. But they would also switch to someone else charging $395 a month if they could find them versus what you were building was the $20,000 a month. And you're getting a PhD who studied this for 10 years 
to do it. Yeah. And I'm not saying that, again, that's the desirable model, all the professional services literature, and it really hasn't changed since the 70s is, you know, you have to have the appropriate kind of pyramid with smart people on top and people that want to make partner and then a bunch of junior intern type people cycling through on the bottom of the pyramid. So you have to have the shape of that pyramid and how steep it is to climb figured out as well, because your average labor rates have to combine into something that the client can swallow and it's comparable to what other people are doing. So what would you have done differently? in these businesses. <laughs> oh, geez. I mean, do we have enough what time in an hour to cover all of them? But... Yeah, I'll tell you some of the mistakes that I made. And maybe that's yeah. just a shorthand for saying the same thing. Good. Um, that works. Yeah. One of the things that, well, again, missionary selling is not fun. If you don't have an established industry, you can't, you know, the way I used to describe what site tuners did is we're really high end but we don't charge nearly as much as they do. So you have to have something to compare against. If you're just saying, well, we're these super wizards of internet marketing and nobody knows what that is, then they don't have a frame of reference. So it helps to position. It's really, really important to get positioning right. And it has to be against an existing thing. It has to be against an established industry or an established way of talking about things. Otherwise, well, let me describe this really complicated thing to you and maybe you'll want it. Not so much. So that's one mistake I made for sure. Another mistake was not getting the labor rates right. I think one of the things I was slow to the party on was I wanted everybody in my office. I wanted those people right next to me. Obviously, post-pandemic, nobody's right. doing that and, and people are more comfortable. But for example, the partners that took over site tuners after I stepped out about three years ago, they have development in Argentina and Mexico and Romania and the Philippines. And so they've taking advantage of the supply chain, if you will, for talented people, but also understanding the advantages of that and signing up for the complexity of it. So you still have smart client-facing people in the U.S. and smart people doing the work, but your effective labor rate can be very different. And I wasn't interested in doing that. So I think one of the mistakes I made was not offshoring some of the work. We did that for limited support administrative stuff, but we really didn't make that the core of the agency. And it seems like these days, if you're actually going to grow an agency as opposed to be a one-man band and hang out your shingle, that you really have to take advantage of the labor rate differentials. There's a bit of a pull in both directions, I would say, in the sense that certainly with the pandemic, the world is flat and you can hire people anywhere. But I also think that we've probably overestimated how willing people are to work with offshore for all of their needs. And the analogy that I sort of give is like, offshore is great. You save money. There's a ton of talented people, but there are certain clients who just want someone to come to their office once a week That's right. or once a month. Yeah and show up in person. And there's some value to that. So no, and I'm not saying exactly. It's a hybrid model. You have to have the client facing folks in the US. If you're in a US agency, there's no way to get around that. And you have to figure out how to manage people time zones away. That's difficult, right? You might have clients in Europe and people working for you in Asia. You never get to sleep. That's its own kind of wear and tear. And then I think even if you do set up a center in another country, you have to have an expensive person that's accountable for riding herd on those people in that location. You can't just put together a stable of outsourced people with no management. There has to be local management. So all of that implies is that you have to have enough volume and large enough projects where you can keep those people occupied and fed and still layer on the quality control and the client interface stuff. Yeah. 
So it's a lot of moving parts. I'm not saying it's easy. Yeah. I'm just, right. yeah, I'm just saying, but to do it all with people that are effectively costing me a couple of hundred thousand in the U.S., that was really, really difficult. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I live in San Francisco Bay Area, so I know what it costs to hire and feed and house someone here. And there's great people all over the country that over the world that can uh, do some work for much less. Yeah. But having said that, here's a caveat. I mean, I work with people around the world. Uh, they're a big cultural norms. And I don't mean to come off wrong, but for example, I had experience with outsourcing to teams in India. And there are two things that really surprised the crap out of me. One of them was, okay, wait, you're on holiday again. There seem to be like 30 holidays a year. <laughs> what do you mean? That's a day off for you. Like I expect you to be in the office and to be able to reach you. That wasn't cool. And then the other thing is just cultural, I guess you'd say differences. For example, yes, doesn't mean yes. Like, will you have that by Tuesday? Yes. Well, <laughs> no, not really because yes, is I heard you and I'm trying to appease you, but it's not my firm commitment. Right. So there's certain expectations of, I guess, how you, uh, you know, formal structured, Northern European culture that I had, which works with Germans, which works with English people or Swedes, but it doesn't work with someone in Malaysia or India, perhaps. And so you have to have people that are culturally fluent, like I said, on the other end that are work for you as a manager to buffer all that and to make sure that quality stuff comes out consistently. Yep. Before I started my agency, I worked for a company where I managed a team in Bangalore, India, and I had that exact experience, which was that sometimes someone will say, yes, no problem. Yes, no problem. Can we have that next week? No problem. And it's a cultural thing where I think it's rude to say no to a boss. And so to figure out what yes really means is if you grew up in that culture, I'm sure it's just intuitive. You just know exactly when someone says yes, no problem. You know if that means next week or two weeks from now. You know? Yeah. And by the way, that does you don't have to go that far away to have similar examples. I'll give you one. My Canadian friends in the US here, we like to think of them as America's hat or the 51st state. but they kind of resent that, just joking. But <laughs> Canadians in their legal system, they actually have to have a clarification recently that if somebody apologizes, that is not an assumption of guilt or them saying that they agree to the underlying thing. They just have a culture of, oh, I'm sorry. They just apologize a lot as a way of social niceties. And so that's something else to, to get used to, for example. So there are these kind of quirks all over the world or differences. Americans are bizarre on many levels. Yes. Others. I think as Americans, we don't realize how aggressive we are relative to mm -hmm. a lot of other cultures. Yeah. 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 Just uh, too upfront, too in your face. I think the closest to us, I would say, psychologically are the Dutch because they were a country of traders and of course established the New York area. But they're just kind of like, yeah, well, it's like, as long as we can do business together, let's do it. And they'll jump into relationships with strangers. But in other places, you have to have those proverbial three cups of tea first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The world is a fascinating place when you start to get into these different cultures. To what degree did your upbringing in the former Soviet Union impact the way you ran your company? Hmm. That's a great question. I never thought about that. I would say that the... You put bugs in the conference room, for example, and, you know. Well, yeah, you know, Uncle Vlad's listening in on the recording <laughs> devices. Yeah. No, there's, um. well, I wouldn't say this, this is a, a Soviet era thing. I think it, maybe it's more of my personality. But one of the mistakes I made, and this is probably applicable more broadly to people who run agencies, I thought the quality of my work was enough to speak for itself. So one of the things that we overemphasized was focusing on the quality of our product. 
And, you know, when it's a conversion rate optimization agency, you're basically telling them that their landing pages or their website is shit, right? And so we just say, hey, look, if we can just objectively and accurately tell you why it's such a piece of crap, then you should thank us for it. Well, not so much. I realize that the soft skills of account management, of making sure that everybody understands the corporate culture and dynamics on the other side, on the client side, was really critical and something that we undervalued and underestimated for years. We just thought that the technical excellence of our work and the results should speak for themselves. And it turns out, no, I mean, running an agency means you have to kiss ass for a living. And is that not what happens in the Soviet Union? I mean, was there no, no... no, there it's very different. People are more brusque. Everybody was equal under the communist Soviet system, which meant we were equally in the same crap. But it also meant that anybody could get in your face and tell you what was wrong, very frankly. Like you take your little kid out in the wintertime and they're not bundled up enough, any passing by grandma could say, you should dress your kid and better so they, or they're going to die of pneumonia. It's like, who asked you, grandma? But that was okay back in the Soviet days. And they think, you know, I was coming more from that you know, brusque culture and directness. And like I said, there's a great line from the TV show Mad Men where Don Draper says, the day you land a client is the day you start losing them. <laughs> <laughs> which I absolutely love. And it's so true. You don't know when, you don't know under what conditions or why. I mean, I've seen it all. I've had companies shut down. I've seen legal stuff stop the campaigns. I've seen people transfer and go to other companies. I've seen a company reorganized around some other metric and say this making actual money is not that important to us. We want to improve our net promoter score, you know, this kind of bullshit. So I've seen just about every permutation of it. But I think that's the truth is in a professional services agency, you're working with very complex expectation management. And some point, you're going to disappoint somebody. And keeping a pulse on that is probably one of the most important account management things that you could be doing. And having formal systems for that is something we never got around to, to our detriment, I would say. So I'd say a couple of things. First of all, I've never lost a client. So this is obviously <laughs> something unique to you. <laughs> You're trying to make it universal, but that never happens. Um, the, uh, All of them are super happy and just want to keep yeah, upping their retainers right. with you. Yeah. Yeah. They just double their payment every month pretty much. No, but I do think like one of my adages is the sad truth is that a great relationship and bad results drive more retention than a bad relationship and great results, at yep. least in the United States, maybe not in Russia mm -hmm. or Holland or something out or another culture, but in this culture, if someone doesn't like you or doesn't like the account manager, it doesn't matter if you are setting world records for conversion rate and ROAS and everything like that, you're out. You're going to be gone. Yeah. And closely related to that, I mean, yes, so you're right. Relationship trumps results. But even in terms of results, is what have you done for me lately? There's a, one of the big difficulties for me for running an agency was a lot of things were out of our control. So for example, they decided to change the traffic sources that they were sending traffic to the landing page from. And they go, look, our results went down. Well, yeah, because you have different people showing up <laughs> from a different population with different beliefs and or maybe different amounts of money in their wallet, whatever it is, and it's no longer working. But I am sure if you put back the old landing page, it would still do 20% worse like the original page did. The results would be even worse. So talking to people through the downdrafts is hard because we want to be objective. We want to be measured on performance. But when they're pulling levers 
that make the business worse and you have no say over it, that's a problem. Or if when you're stuck in a seasonal or an economic down cycle, you have no control over that. But how do you tell them, yeah, it could be even worse. So you should stick with us. Well, one of your expressions that I love is your baby is ugly. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think that's from your first book, maybe. Yeah, it is. It's a chapter with that name in my landing page optimization book. It strikes me that, first of all, that's very Soviet of you, since we're talking about being frank with people. (laughs) And that sounds like something someone would say, your baby is ugly. You're walking along (laughs) the streets of Moscow. But it also speaks to just like, I guess, the maybe was this your philosophy in working with clients? Like, we got to just get to objective facts and just not take it personally and get to the good results. Yeah. And again, that was a mistake because somebody built that ugly baby. Somebody designed that website. Somebody did those. And there's going to be confirmation bias there, right? I mean, right, right. Uh, Nobody wants to hear their baby is ugly because they've invested so much time and energy into growing and raising them. And so, and you're saying that in front of their colleagues and you say that to the C-level people and they really have a cow. Is that when you transform from Soviet to Canadian and you just try to be yeah, as you polite apologize as possible. A lot. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, you know, it, it's funny because we did work for I, these many years later, I can say Autodesk, a pretty big Fortune 500 company that makes sure. AutoCAD software. And we redesigned essentially the website for one of their products. And we split tested it directly saying, here's which one works better. And this one on an annualized basis, the new one would have been $17 million a year more revenue in terms of leads it generated for their VARs. And they said, but it's off brand for us. So we're not going to actually flip the switch live and, and adopt that as our new website. I mean, stuff like that happened all the time. So even money doesn't even talk. <laughs> you know, it's just weird. Wow. They have other considerations. I would think from the outside that doing conversion rate optimization, that anyone who signs up for your agency goes into it knowing that you're going to change things. You're going to, yeah, we're gonna, and, we're and you're going to do it in a, a sledgehammer. Yeah. Yeah. But big companies, they're so ossified. They have these brand guardians or brand Nazis, as I call them, that are very, very specific. So for example, once we were, did a split test on Texas Instruments homepage, this was a big company back in the day, made calculators and such. And they actually gave us a 180 page brand guideline, like thou shalt use this font, but no smaller than eight characters. And you can't have the logo with this much white space next to it. Unbelievable degree of anal retentive control. So the stuff that we could test was inconsequential because it was just hamstrung by their brand guardians. And sometimes that's one of the most conservative roles in the company because, yeah, I understand they want to enforce a consistency across a vast array of consumer touch points. That's admirable. But if you're not getting frontline feedback about what's actually working in order to feed back into your brand documents, then you're really fighting with both hands tied behind your back. I mean, same thing. We tested the Google AdWords homepage, the one where you sign up for Google AdWords. As not the big accounts, but the great unwashed, you know, the small businesses. Massive, massive traffic through that page. But again, <laughs> I mean, there's a, what was it? I think the creative director pretty high up at Google at one point quit, as I recall, many years ago because they were going to test the RGB value of the blue on the button because they had that amount of traffic and they could. But it's just ridiculous how inconsequential some of these things are and the constraints that people put around them in the name of branding. There's a story which I think is true that in the early, early days of Google, like we're talking probably 1998 or something like that, there was a guy who every week would send an email to someone, I guess, on the Google design team. And it would be one 
number. It'd be 52, 57, 56, whatever. And that number was related to the number of words on the Google homepage. And <laughs> I was literally like keeping them accountable because it started out with being just, it just said, Google, I'm Search feeling lucky. The button. You know, yeah. Exactly. Someone was like holding their feet to the fire to not turn into sort of what at that time would be like the Yahoo homepage, which probably had 7,000 words on it. Yeah. And so again, that's a design aesthetic, you could argue, just like Apple has their thing and you can't argue with their success. So I think it's important to chop away and simplify things. And that was a huge theme that we got a lot of mileage out of as a conversion rate optimization agency. Just declutter stuff. You don't have to add anything. Try removing some things that shouldn't be there in the first place. So because a lot of landing pages and websites are a camel and a camel is a horse designed by committee and everybody has their two cents and it becomes this Frankenstein monster of parts that are serviceable individually. But when you juxtapose them and put them together, it's definitely not a coherent whole. So that is another thing that I would say that a lot of companies and a lot of digital marketing agencies get wrong is they're always trying to add the latest stuff. And they never think about the context in which they're adding it and the complexity that they're creating or the choice overload for, for the poor visitors. I wrote an article a while back that was titled, We Test Everything and Other Lies CMOs Tell. The CMOs are always <laughs> like, oh, yeah, we're very quantitative. Everything is measurable. And then you're like, okay, well, here's a change to your landing page that will have a $17 million impact. I'm not even going to do a test on that. That's not brand compliant. We're not doing it. Or, or yeah. I just really think blue is going to look better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's the hippo, right? The, the highest hippo. paid person's opinion. Oh, wow. You're not only running a profit and loss division of a hundred million, but you're also an expert on color theory and you know which colors <laughs> are going to work on the button. Congratulations. And actually, I believe, I mean, you used to have a conference called what conversion. What was conversion it conference. conference? Yeah, it's still conversion going. Conference. It's been going since 2010. Okay. It's still going. I remember I was in the exhibit hall of conversion conference and Google Analytics was there and they had a giant hippo at their booth to call out the hippos that we were trying to avoid. That's right. I have one of those inflatable or little yeah. hippos. Yep. So you're talking about some big clients that sounds like having Autodesk as a client would be great. I think it's Texas Instruments. These are great clients, but turned out to not be, not to say they were bad clients, but you had challenges along the way. I mean, did you get smart about like, did you reject clients up front if they didn't sort of hit certain Yeah, points? yeah. That's a great point. So you have to be realistic. You can have some stretch goals, I mean, look, we had uh, at site tuners over the years are Facebook, Nestle, Expedia, Google, Siemens. I mean, I could go on, you know, we had dozens of global 500 clients, but those were not that fun to work with because you're not really working with the client. You're not their agency of record. A lot of stuff is handed down to you and we can't change that is the answer. Some middle manager, three, four levels down is saying, well, we have to use those brand guidelines or we have to use this content management system and we're not allowed to innovate or do anything meaningful or we have to localize it and translate it into 37 languages. Therefore, we're not even willing to change the words on the button or whatever. You know, there's just bizarre stuff that comes up. Big companies, as I look at it, are balanced on this point of where they have the advantages of mass and of market acceptance and of the ecosystem they've built around them. And that's balancing on the teeter-totter with all their inefficiency and stupidity and one hand doesn't know what the other is doing. And that's not a fun environment to be in if you're a creative agency or you're doing anything dynamic or meaningful or if you want 
anything less than three to six month approval cycles on the most trivial stuff. So I can't say I enjoyed that at all. On the other hand, you have businesses that are too small where there's the owners are a one man oompa band and they're questioning everything and sticking their nose in and they're really high maintenance and they're not paying you nearly enough to deal with their crap. So there's got to be a kind of a Goldilocks zone. And we figured this out for our agency when I left it anyway, it was probably companies between 10 and 100 million because you had the attention of their senior people. There weren't seven or eight deep in a decision making process. If you got the CMO or the CEO to sign off on something, it got done. Had enough resources to do it, weren't micromanaging. And so you weren't hamstrung at the enterprise level. So that's definitely important. Just think of company size and who you're selling into. Those are critical considerations for an agency. So for us, we were best when we were dealing with at least a VP to CEO level. And if we got down to director level, they couldn't make any important decisions. So director level, that would be a red flag. And look, if that's who the decision maker is when you're looking at the contract. Exactly. They're not really making the real decision in an enterprise. It's procurement that's making it or somebody's got to sign off on it. Gord Hotchkiss, who was in the industry, I don't think he is any longer, but he published some stuff, some original research called the Biosphere Project. I think it's still available as a book on Amazon. One of the things he was talking about, size of organization and number of decision makers. If it's two to three, that's okay. If it's six to seven, it's never going to happen. And that's what happens in big companies. Just totally too many cooks in the kitchen. So in some cases, you signed up a client thinking that it was going to be a good fit. Inevitably, we all have bad client experiences. How did you deal with challenging clients once they were already signed on? Yeah. Well, you know what? A lot of times you sign up for clients. I'm going to challenge your assumption, knowing they're going to be a bad fit. You're desperate. You have your feast and famine cycles in any agency. You're running around trying to fulfill the work, then you're running around trying to get more work. And it's always a roller coaster. It's not like some steady linear thing that's always up and to the right. But most of the time you take, hey, you got $20,000 as a retainer a month. Let's do it. We'll even give you a 90 day out instead of a one year out, a one year contract. So basically what you're saying is, hey, let's get married. Oh, wait, you're insane. Like I just didn't know what flavor of mental illness your company represented, right? So it's not like you're that choosy. Let's face it. I don't know who's lucky enough to just say, oh, we're going to turn away business and we have a no assholes rule. I mean, all that stuff's nice in theory, but I know very, very few small agency owners that are in that boat. So you kind of know they're going to be a problem. You can even try to manage around it or to know it's happening, but it's not any more fun on the other side of it. It really burned a lot of my staff to work with asshole clients. And so there's that price to be paid too, because you're not just keeping clients happy, you have to keep your employees happy. That may be even harder, especially if you have difficult clients. So that's the reason not to take on big clients if you can at all avoid them. But sometimes they represent so much money that you have to take them on. Of course, that comes with the flip side of portfolio risk. We had one client at one point that represented half of our recurring revenue. Not a good place to be, I promise you. So one way to deal with that risk is to have entry-level plans and small enough price points where you have 20, 30, 40 of these smaller guys. You don't really care if two, three, or even five of them go away. But you really have to worry about your buffalo hunting the big game stuff if one of those goes away. And I don't know, there's no Band-Aid that I found or silver bullet that would keep a big client with complex expectations happy consistently. I agree with you, especially when you're a smaller agency. 
you often have to just take whatever comes in the door because that client is the difference between paying the rent and not paying the rent. Mm-hmm. As you or get bigger, only your employees also paying yourself. Yeah, exactly. Your employees get to have lunch and you get to have ramen. It's a huge challenge. And I do think as you get bigger, I think the no asshole rule really comes into effect because a client that's paying you a ton of money, but that's causing attrition among your staff or causing the staff to doubt whether you actually care about the staff. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's that the money has to be very significant to sort of say to your team, deal with it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, they look at people you know, right now we're talking about things in the middle of what's called the great resignation. Digital nomads can go literally anywhere. And that's who we're dealing with as employees, people that have very portable skills that they carry inside their heads. And uh, they don't need to be in the warehouse moving stuff along the conveyor belt to get packages out the door or something like that, right? So we have to be extra nice and kind to our employees. And there are also generational differences. I'm on the leading edge of Gen X. And to me, it's kind of like, no, mommy's not going to come to your job interview. And no, you can't show up whenever you want to. Just And no, there's no transcendental meaning here working for my agency. Just like you do a good job, you get paid and and then fuck off and do whatever you want on the weekends. But that's not the mentality of the workforce right now. And people don't have any sense of loyalty or I would say like in many cases, even personal integrity. And they'll ghost you and quit the job. And the way you find out is three days later, they still haven't shown up to the office. So you call them. So that kind of stuff I've heard from all kinds of agency heads. And my way of avoiding that was to work with grownups, which to me meant people around my own age. And I very specifically tried not to have younger employees because of all of these expectations that were baked into how they were raised. But that's, you know, as you get older, that's not a long-term solution either. I think I disagree with you in some respects. First of all, I think that every 22-year-old regardless of their generation, thinks they should be vice president by age 25. I certainly did. And I was 22 or 23. I was working for a law firm as a paralegal. And I was like writing the closing arguments for the lawyers, even though I had never gone to law school. That's how confident I was in my (laughs) my abilities. I thought they were pretty good arguments. But anyways, so I think that part is like not a Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z. I don't even know what generation we're on, you know, post X millennial. But I think two things that are different with this generation versus our generation. Number one is there hasn't really been a recession for 14 years. So anyone who's come into the market in the last 14 years has never seen a down year where Mm -hmm. suddenly a third of their friends are (laughs) laid off in two months. So I think that impacts people. And then the second one is, as you said, the digital nomad thing. I mean, it used to be that if you grew up in Kansas City and you wanted to work in search engine marketing, there were three agencies you could choose from. And that many? If that, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. There may be one agency. And so now you can be in remote Alaska. And as long as you have some sort of Elon Musk's Starlink or something to get you a high-speed internet access, you can work anywhere. So that's yeah, me. Well, I think that's it. There's definitely a, the threshold to switch jobs has gotten a lot lower, both because of choice and the ability to people poaching you on the recruiting side out of companies and stuff like that. You really have to kind of watch your back. I know a lot of management training programs folded within the last 10 years because the longevity of your people developing, it makes no sense if the average 10 years, 18 months, why would I do a management training program on the assumption they'll be there five years from now? So that's kind of collapsed and people are all free agents and maybe that's for the better. But in a way, I think ultimately 
we're not doing any favors to anybody because this is going to be like Uber. You know, everybody needs a side hustle. Basically, like we're all going to be exploited because the marketplace is going to be super efficient. So, yeah, you can go anywhere, but your employees can also source people anywhere, your employers rather. So it's a two-edged sword, and I don't know that the center is going to hold, frankly. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there's been a lack of loyalty by employees. There's also been a lack of loyalty by companies as well. So that's the double-edged sword in all of this. I mean, a lot of companies try to have really strong cultures and core values, but at the end of the day, companies make decisions based on what's best for the bottom line. And then let's talk about that. There is another peculiarity of like you said, maybe it's because I was a latchkey kid. Both of my parents worked. But again, that was the ethos of Gen Xers and grunge. It's like, you know, just like, we'll get by. We don't need you, right? There's this notion that work's supposed to provide transcendental meaning, that culture really matters. And I just, you hear that all the time. And, you know, how do we develop everyone to be a leader and still have yoga nap rooms and kombucha on tap? I don't know. It's just, no, it's just work. And if it's a profit motive in a hyper-competitive, monopolistic capitalist society, which is what we have. It's actually not even capitalist because that assumes that you have competition. You're just a productive unit, whether you like it or not. And so we can dress it up by saying there's meaning, but is Uber changing the world? No, it's a fancier way to call a taxi. So Elon Musk changing the world? Well, arguably, no. He's just tasting carbs from the fossil fuel era to the electric era. So all this disruption and all this pivoting and all this growth hacking and just like, really, you believe you're changing the world? No, you're just running faster on the gerbil wheel. Well, you know, there's Maslow's hierarchy of needs in the job world is there's a job, a career and a calling. And the job is Mm -hmm. something that puts food on the table so you don't starve. A career is an opportunity to advance and attain a higher position. And a calling is something that you do feel is mission driven. And I think you're right that not everything that you do in the agency world is going to be mission driven. I mean, you may be working for the blue widgets company that just makes that you increase the number of widgets from a million widgets sold a month to a million five hundred thousand. That's not that that's not that meaningful. But I think that the thing that does sort of create some glue is if people just care about each other inside the agency. If you just want people to succeed, want people to be happy, and then also work with clients that you want to see succeed. So even if it's the client selling blue widgets and you don't really care. If you really like that vice president of the marketing on the other side and you want to see her become successful, there's a bit of a calling in that. Yeah. And that's what they say about warfare, right? You're not fighting for some grand cause. You're fighting for the fellow soldiers in the trench next to you. And so, right. yeah, I think establishing a culture of closed ties, but that also is a two-edged sword. I'd say like the other thing that's different and being on the other side of it now is extreme ageism. So you're expected to be on call on the Slack channels 24-7. And yeah, some of the time you go play beer pong together or do a ropes course on a company outing, but you're all expected to have the time to do that. Well, you know, I have kids. I'm not going to go play ropes courses. I've, I've already crashed three cars by driving too fast. I don't need thrills in my life. So I think part of it's a stage in life thing. And if you assume everybody's in their 20s and 30s, yeah, maybe you can build a culture that's essentially what tech companies try to do, which is an extension of, well, you never left college. (laughs) So we'll wash your clothes and there'll be concierge delivery of high quality foods and sushi in the cafeteria. Anything to get you to be here 24 seven so we can milk you for more profits, right? Whether it's an agency or in-house, it's the same. But you can't do that to people once they start families. And so it's predicated on squeezing as much out of people early in their career as possible. I don't know that there's a culture that can span generations that would work for inside of a company. 
Well, as you said, it's, I think you mentioned the pyramid that's been around since the 70s. I mean, the definition of the pyramid is that the people in the bottom of the pyramid, and to use Karl Marx, reckoning, going back to the Soviet Union again, they're being alienated from their labor. I mean, those people are being paid $80 an hour and being charged out at $300 an hour. Right. And, and then whether the it's an architect or a law office or a digital marketing agency, it's all the same. It's got to work economically, right? Yeah. And you bide your time at that lower level for the opportunity to someday get up to the higher level where either you're getting paid $300 and you're being billed out at $600, or if you're an owner, you're doing nothing and you're making money off other people. No, look, that's if you stay in the corporate world or the agency world. And a lot of people are just opting out by becoming solopreneurs. And that's true. It's if you have that possibility, a lot of people are figuring out, well, I'll blog and I'll get sponsors for my blog and I'll make money that way, or I'll teach online yoga classes and I'll get a big enough following and then I can live in Thailand and work from there. So there are possibilities, but this is like for a tiny, tiny segment of society, it doesn't solve society's problems. For them, for most of us, we're still stuck in the corporate world. And if anything, it's getting more ruthless, I think. So just some philosophical takes on it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that is the nature of capitalism. I mean, capitalism only really works if people feel that they have a chance, albeit a small chance, to become part of the ruling elite. There has to be that one in a thousand chance that if I work hard, someday I'll get out of the cubicle and I'll be the one who's flying around in the private jet. Yeah, well, that's like if you're lucky enough to be in a cubicle, which means you got an education, which means you probably went to college or something like that. But if we look at it overall, actually, there is no social mobility. There's better social mobility in the quote unquote socialist countries of Northern Europe than there is in the US. Your chances of going from the lowest quintile to the highest quintile in this society are lower than they are in Denmark or the UK. And in fact, the biggest determiner of your financial trajectory in life, as well as life expectancy, health outcomes, all of that, is the zip code you were born in by far. I can predict a lot about you just from that. So the American dream's dead and buried. So we can talk about meritocracies and working your way up, but I don't really see that. I think that millennials are actually the first generation post-World War II that's on average going to do worse than their parents. I sort of have this neo-capitalist theory. I know we're going way off uh, the agency world, but that's okay. This is interesting. <laughs> Off-road. I knew that was going to happen, Tim. So again, I think capitalism, the unwashed masses, so to speak, have to believe that they can be more f- successful than their parents. If they don't, then they lose faith in the system. And again, going back to Marx and Hegel, that's where the revolution occurs when people feel like there's no upward mobility. And I would have guessed, and again, Hegel and Marx would have said the same thing, that the way people would have responded would be through some socialist, communist movement. But what you could argue is the 2016 election was a movement of people who went towards a right-wing, somewhat fascist approach. Oh, yeah. And that's not just not in the U.S. and not just 2016. You're seeing in Hungary and Poland, a number of Brazil, a number of places around the world is autocratic, strongman populist stuff. It's because Western democracies are fraying and not able to carry the water anymore. Actually, I don't believe in this linear view of social development implied in Marxism and such, but I read a really influential book called The Fourth Turning. Highly recommend that. A couple of historians wrote in the late 90s, 
And they're talking about these 80 to 100 year cycles that inevitably go from crisis to a post-crisis high to a cultural awakening and then to an unraveling, which leads inevitably to the next crisis. And the generations born in that and the dynamics that system basically lock it in and recreate it. Only the things that we experience in living memory inform how we live. And so we repeat the mistakes of history. Anyway, according to them, again, written in the late 90s, they're saying 2025 is the current crisis period. So we're deep in it. And uh, yeah, just like you, I think I'm not sure that America in, in anything but outward trappings will exist as a republic after 2024. My personal yeah. hell is, I mean, I could just as easily see a handmaid's tale sort of society developing. So there's nothing inevitable about the forward march of progress. It's these cycles and tides. Yeah. Right now I've depressed the crap out of us. Let's go back to talking about agencies. You know, I will say as a fellow Gen Xer, this is definitely like old man argument here, but I have this theory that the 90s were the best decade ever. And I say that because the Cold War had just ended. So we didn't have this like existential threat of death. We had really strong economy. We had relatively low in terms of Americans being impacted by horrific events. I mean, we had the Iraq war, which was terrible for many Iraqis. But for Americans, you had the Oklahoma City bombing, and that was probably the only sort of major event. We didn't have 9-11. We also didn't have cell phones, and we didn't have the internet, which meant that we could have some level of freedom if we wanted to go to the beach and just relax. No one would panic. We didn't sort of text them in 90 minutes. So I think like if you start around 2001... From 9-11 forward, we've had 9-11, we've had like ubiquitous technology that has sort of taken over our lives. We've had pandemic, we've had recession, we've had attack on the White House. I mean, yeah, yeah, well, so, so, those- yeah, I mean, absolutely. If we map this latest 80 years or so cycle onto this fourth turning idea, the crisis period was the Great Depression and World War II. After that, we unified as a society. So from the mid-40s to mid-60s, that was the post-war high. We built the interstate highway system. We put people on the moon as a result of all and that. There was, there was like, obviously like racism and sexism and a lot of problems. Yeah, exactly. Time, but- so what happens in the society is the lid was kept on all that. And in the 60s and 70s, you have the cultural awakening led by the baby boomers, right? They're coming of age at that time. And so inevitably, the unraveling happens in about 80s to 2000. Things keep getting worse. That's kind of the map. And now we're inevitably in another crisis period. So this is the kind of the cycles of history repeating. And there's definitely different flavors to our particular version of the cycle. But I think the argument of this book, which I find very compelling, is that when you're born into this cycle determines your role in it. Like you say, Gen Xers were kind of like, well, crap's just been getting worse since we were born. We've never yeah. seen a better time. It's just slowly going downhill, and now it's really fast going downhill. And the music has gotten worse, too. I mean, it, you know, it kind oh, of takes the 90s, I'm right? sorry, but yeah. So rock and roll, <laughs> 60s, uh, late 60s to mid-70s, right. that was the golden age. All this overproduced sampled crap right now. I'm sorry. Yep, I agree. I I really do feel like, oh, yeah, old man, like, yeah, the kids these days and their damn music. Yeah, those haircuts. How about those haircuts? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you a couple more questions. We went way off track, but that was good. Let me ask you a couple agency questions. Uh, Since you have been sort of a trendsetter for agencies, what's your prediction for the future of agencies? I think that there's going to be very hard to have agencies in the middle. Normally, you talk about a bell curve distribution on a lot of things. We have more of an inverted U shape in terms of the revenue. It's going to go either to tiny 
agencies, specialists, uh, people that hang out their own shingle and maybe have two or three quality people that they can farm stuff out to, or you're going to have the big international multinational agencies that can serve enterprise clients. It's really hard to go from one to the other. If you're small, you're going to get bought up by one of the big guys. It's hard to exist as an independent in the middle. So I say like either be content working in a lifestyle business for the most part, or know that you're going to be swallowed up by the WPPs of the world. It's very hard to do what you've done with 3Q and stay an independent mid-sized kind of agency. So be clear about what you want. Do you want to get bought or do you want to just have a lifestyle business? I actually agree with you. And a couple of years ago, I wrote an article that was titled, The SEM Agency is Dying and What to Do About It. And I basically came to the same conclusion that you either have to be an enterprise, not just SEM, but multiple offerings. Omnichannel. Yeah, Omnichannel, multinational, great at landing page optimization, but also great at buying connected TV ads. Or you have to be sort of a small business solution, one of these companies where you're charging someone $800 a month and you have one person checking the account once a month. And yep. but being in the middle, you're going to get, for the big accounts, you're going to lose to the multi-channel, multinational agencies. And for the small accounts, you're going to lose to the cheaper solution. So exactly. it's a bad place to be. Yeah. So that's um, why I call it the U-shape. You know, there's like all the masses on the sides. It's like flipping the bell curve on its head. Yeah. I like that. You have a book that came out, I think, maybe a year and a half ago. No, no. It just came out less than a year ago. Less than a year ago. So Unleash Your Primal Brain. I have to say, I love this book because it's like a primer on behavioral psychology in like 200 pages. Like every chapter is just chock full of studies and observations from people like Cialdini and Dan Ariely and Carl Jung, whatever. So maybe I poorly described it, but give us the uh, 30 second description of the book. Yeah, absolutely. So as you know, I wrote two best-selling books on landing page optimization. Those are practitioners, online marketing people. It was a college-level textbook, 450 pages. A lot of good stuff in there. But this one was very deliberately different. It's actually not a marketing book. The way I describe it is it's essentially a user manual for being human. It's retracing the arc of evolution and figuring out where we picked up various stuff that makes up our brains. So there's some things we share with insects, like dopamine. There's some things we share with other mammals, like the need to safety of the herd. And then there's some things that make us bizarrely human at the end of our evolution that we should also understand. And so if you want to have a good career in business, whether it's leadership, sales, marketing, Maybe you should understand how people actually decide to make decisions and that rational decision making that isn't actually happening in your brain at all. I mean that literally. You can't make a decision without an emotional component. And so I retrace brain chemistry, learning, memory, addiction, storytelling, our highly social natures, how we spread culture. So I'm not talking about the contents of our operating system. I'm just describing how human beings work in general. And I think that that's my contribution is to make that accessible. Thank you for saying that. There's no gobbledygook in there. I also have an ebook version that I recorded. So it's really kind of a something that describes what all 8 billion of us on the planet have in common. Yeah, it's a great book. And I will say that my 11-year-old son has been using it recently, but actually to balance it on his head while he does juggling on a skateboard. <laughs> so I posted it on Facebook, one use of Tim's. But actually, yeah. I mean, I would say I recommend the book and I recommend that you read each chapter like three times because it is a dense book. And I don't mean dense in a bad way. I mean, it's just, you just throw so much data out there. 
that well, well, you have yeah, data. I want to be clear. There's no tables. There's no citations. No. There's no graphs. There's no scientific jargon in there. It's designed as a straight read, but it's dense in the sense of I didn't put any fluff in. And when I was done no. writing about a subject, I just stopped and went on to the next one. You know, so there's no flab in the book, I would say. No, it is lean and mean. And again, I'm going to reread it again because I really enjoyed it. And it's just an area I love. I mean, I was just reading about Daniel Kahneman and uh, Amos Tversky. And Tversky. The, yeah, the well, some of the projects, and... some of the, the actual scientists that are doing the research is they're horrible writers and somebody needs to shoot their editors because some of those books should have never seen the light of day. So I went yeah. through the painful process of digesting about 30 to 50 books to write one good one. So I'm pretty proud of that. By the way, you can go to primalbrain.com slash book and choose the chapter of your choice. So if anybody's listening, just go take a look at the table of contents and I'll send you whatever chapter you want out of the book. That's awesome. Well, you know what? It's like $14 to buy it, $16, just buy it. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to break the piggy bank. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Tim, that was a free ranging conversation. I thank you for the uh, unvarnished post agency perspective. And it's always enjoyable. And I hope that people don't give up on capitalism and find some sort of meaning in their agency world, despite our conversation today. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm into that, but I just want them to go into it with eyes wide open. Eyes open. Yep. Cool. Yeah, All no, right. Thanks no, for joining me. It was great. Absolutely. And if anybody wants to reach out, you know, feel free to check out timash.com for my consulting and speaking. And then again, primalbrain.com, all things focused on the book. Awesome. Great. A new episode of Agentic Shift drops every Wednesday. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or visit agenticshift.com to see the latest episode.